All right, let's get into the word of God. Man, I'm so excited to be on this, uh, on this journey with you as you guys are talking about dependency, talking about prayer. And that, really, that's all prayer is. Prayer is saying, man, I, I, I have to talk to somebody that I can be dependent on. And there's nothing that shows your maturity like dependency. It's, it's almost like, you know, my, my kids, uh, when they were getting older, in order for me to gauge their maturity, it was opposite. It was how independent they were. So they would pick their own clothes out. They would cook their own food. I don't, I don't eat their eggs, but they cook their own food. They'd just be too runny for me. Uh, they cook their own food, and, and they start to become more and more independent. And my wife and I would look at each other and say, they're maturing. That's maturity, independence. It's opposite in the kingdom. In the kingdom, you don't, measure, you don't measure your maturity by independence. You actually do it by dependence. The more dependence you have on the Lord, the more you are maturing. And I think our passage today is going to really lay that out for us. Let me do this. I'm going to read. I'm going to kind of announce our theme. I'm going to pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll dig in. All right, verse 23, we're in Acts chapter 4. It says, when they were released, they meaning Peter and John, When they were released, they went to their friends, their friends meaning the church, and reported what the chief priests and the elders said to them. And when they heard it, they lift up their voice together to God and said, here's the prayer, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, if you mark in your Bibles, write Psalm chapter 2, next to this next verse, because that's what they're about to quote from. Why did the Gentiles enrage? Uh, Why did the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against the anointed, his anointed. Verse 27, and truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Verse 29. And now, Lord, grant, it says, and now, Lord, look upon your threats, their threats, and grant your servant to continue to speak the word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand and heal And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Last verse. And when they had prayed, the place that they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I want to stay right where you guys have been on this dependency series and talk about prayer-fueled mission. Prayer-fueled mission. If you guys would join me in prayer before we dig in the text, uh, that would be, be good. Uh, Father, we do echo the words of the Old Testament prophet Samuel, where he said in 1 Samuel 3.10, Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Prayer-fueled mission. I'm convinced that modern church has lost this, what we would call spiritual discipline of consistency in prayer. I was doing a research paper uh, a few years ago on um, 
on the, the, the writer, Mark, John Mark, the, one of the writers of one of the Gospels. In fact, it was the first Gospel to be written. And I was doing a research paper on how he had, uh, typically most people wouldn't see this in the text, but if you look deep enough in the text and the history uh, and, and the, what they call the Coptic church, most people believe that he was from Cyrene. Cyrene is currently, is current day Libya, which means he had some African roots to him. And when I was studying the scriptures and, and studying history on this guy, John Mark, I ran across some interesting stories from African church fathers, particularly about prayer. And there was this one story that I read that was talking about how early converts in Africa to Christianity would pick a spot in the thicket or in the bushes that they would go, and that would be the place that they would pray. But as a consequence, if you lacked prayer or you were not consistent in prayer, you would start to know because the path on which you would go in and out of your spot in the bush, the grass would start to grow back. And so what they would do is they would look at each other and they would hold each other accountable for consistency in prayer by simply looking at each other and saying, brother, sister, the path grows on your path. In other words, what they were basically saying is you've lacked consistency in prayer. And I think if you're honest on any level, I don't care how spiritual you are. I don't care if you have on a John 316 shirt today, a what would Jesus do bracelet. I don't care if you got up at five o'clock and prayed all morning. All of us in this room at some point in some season of life has lost consistency in prayer. We've lacked the ability to constantly pray. We've made decisions and haven't consulted the Lord. We've jumped into opportunities and haven't consulted the Lord, but we've gone through our life and we've done it prayerless. Well, I think our passage is going to help us today to understand the importance of consistency in prayer, but also the content of prayer. I love to not just parachute into this passage, but I love to do a little, a little context because if you just parachute in, we don't know what was happening in the surrounding passages. Up until this point, the church, the Peter and John, which are pillars in the church, leaders in the church, are receiving major opposition. If you, in fact, if you read the previous chapter, you'll see that they were healing a lame man and they were questioned about healing him in the name of Jesus. The, the religious leaders pulled them in and questioned them. They were arrested for preaching the gospel. And then when they were released, they were threatened to never preach in the name of Jesus again. And that is major opposition. But what I love is after Peter and John uh, received opposition, they go back to their friends, which is the church. And when they get back to the church, they do not call a strategic meeting. They do not look at growth charts on how to grow a church. They don't go on Instagram and try to see what else that they should do to help the church grow in the midst of opposition. I love what the church did. The early church prayed. Where we would call a strategic meeting, they don't do that. They simply get before the Lord and they start to pray. They don't pull out plans to build a new logo and to be attractive to the church. It's not an attractional model for them. They knew that if they, if they were going to continue on with mission, the only way they would do that is through prayer. And I believe that this passage will serve us well. I don't know if you have pens or if you take notes here or if you take them in your phone. I have three points and I'd love for you to write them down. These three points will guide our time. And I promise you each one of them is found in our passage today. Point number one we're going to talk about is in prayer, recognize God's control. Point number two, in prayer, remember God's word. And then finally, in point number three, in prayer, request God's action. 
If you don't mind, my time today, those are the three points. That's the best. I, I, drew, I flew 3,000 miles to give you those three points, and this is the best I got. So uh, let's deal with each one. First one, in prayer, recognize God's control. Look at verse 23. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends, meaning the church, and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voice together and said, please note these two words, sovereign Lord. If you write in your Bibles, underline that, draw a line out to the margin and just write, wow, write something cool in there. It's a sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. I I love this because they begin their prayer in a way that we typically don't begin our prayers. They begin their prayer by acknowledging God's control, and they do it with a theological or or really religious word called sovereignty. It it just basically means God is in control. And then they go on to explain it. They say, sovereign Lord who made the heavens and made the earth, but that's not it. You also made the sea and you made everything in the sea. What struck me was that they did not say when they called on God in the beginning of their prayer, they did not say father. That would have been appropriate, but that's not what they said. They did not say just merely Lord. That would have been appropriate, but that's not what they said. They did not say God. That would have been appropriate, but that is not what they said. When they begin their prayer, they did so recognizing and realizing the one that they were praying to is in complete control of the universe. The one that they are praying to and the one that they are are, are calling on is a sovereign God. Again, just meaning he is in control. And the early church understood That if they were going to be serious on any level about mission and reaching the city and reaching their neighborhood and reaching their block, wherever they dwelt and wherever they lived and wherever they worked, if they were going to be serious, they had to pray to a sovereign God, one that was had unparalleled control. No one else came even close to the control that he has in collective church. We, too, must pray like this collective church. We, too, must pray to a sovereign God. It is not your giftings that will keep God's mission going. It is not your eloquence that keeps God's mission going. It is not your your style of dress, and you guys are cool. Y'all have the skinniest jeans in LA. I love it. (laughs) But it is not your style of dress that is going to attract people to the mission and to the church of God. It is not your resources. Praise God that you guys are over budget. You have a surplus. Praise God. But that is not what's going to keep collective church on mission. What is going to keep us all on mission is appealing to a sovereign Lord, a God that made everything, everything, including the chair you're sitting on, the coffee you sip or you're sipping right now. Everything wears the same label made by God. Can I tell you why that's good news? Because the opposition that you may have in reaching the neighborhood and reaching L.A. and reaching lost people, it might be impossible for you. But what's impossible for you is possible for a sovereign God. Well, what is hard for you is easy for God. Do you realize what you are bucking up against and having a hard time getting accomplished? Do you realize God is in heaven? He's not in heaven frantic. He's not calling the spirit together. Jesus, pull out the blueprint, pull out the map of L.A. I don't have jurisdiction here. No, he has jurisdiction everywhere. He's in complete control. And so what is that, what, what is that thing as, as, as a collective church? See what I did there? As a church, 
What is the thing that you've been praying for, seeking God for, and you haven't got the answer? Just know it's not because God lacks control. He's sovereign. He's made the heavens. Do you realize that if he's made the heavens, that means he made the angelic world? All of the angels, which, by the way, means Satan was created by a sovereign Lord. And if that is the case, what you are dealing with right now in your personal life, what is the, maybe it's you, you, you're dependent on your resume. You want your resume to get you that job. That's not what gets you the job, sovereign Lord. You want to open that business, but you, won't get, you can't get the bank loan. The bank loan isn't going to help you. What's going to help you is sovereign Lord. Now do your resume. Please go out for that loan, but just know, don't be too dependent on it because our dependency is completely on Jesus. Does that make sense? In our church in Brooklyn, we're pretty much like you in terms of context, a heavy populated city. Brooklyn is 2.6 million people. It's the largest of the five boroughs in New York. Um, extremely diverse neighborhood. Uh, it's about 80 different neighborhoods that make up Brooklyn. We're in a section called Bedford-Stuyvesant. And by God's grace, uh, we planted the church. We launched in 2016. And by God's grace, I-, I don't know how to explain it besides it just feels like revival is taking place. Like people are giving their life to the Lord and, and committing to community. And we- we're renting now a, we have it seven days a week, but it's a small little curve. It's, it's a curves. Y'all ever heard the work workout uh, curves? It's a workout curves room uh, that, that we've rented out, and we've completely gutted it out and made it a sanctuary and made it a church. It's a small little space. But by God's grace, the church grew so much uh, in, in the first couple of years that we had to add a service. And then that wasn't enough. We had to add a service. In fact, I got a text from my wife uh, before I came in this morning. She's at the church in Brooklyn, and she was telling me that they literally this morning in our first service had to put chairs out the door because there was just no room. By God's grace, people are coming and, and, and getting it and, and being a part of God's local body. But here's what's happening for us. We've been praying for a space. We've been praying for a larger building. We've been praying for a larger facility. And if I can be honest, I've been discouraged. I've been discouraged all summer long because we've been met with opposition. Opposition from the DOB, the the city, opposition from the landlords, they don't trust the church, opposition from the building, everything. We've experienced so much opposition, and I've been discouraged, but I praise God that uh, Lorenzo invited me and particularly asked me to preach on prayer because when I opened up Acts 4, I immediately got encouraged. And the reason I immediately got encouraged is because I realized the opposition we are facing is a piece of cake for a sovereign Lord. And if he has not opened the door, it's his will that he hasn't opened it yet. It's not because he's weak. It's not because he's passive. He's in control. And so what is it that you've been praying? What is it that you've been seeking God for? What is it that you've been pleading with the Lord? Lord, would you do this? It's nothing for him. Sovereign Lord, appeal to him in prayer as the one that is in control. Point number one, In prayer, recognize God's control. My grandmother would never say sovereignty. She didn't have that dialect. She she wasn't that eloquent. She didn't use words like that. My grandmother would always just say to me, baby, God is in control. And basically, that's good theology. She's just basically saying exactly what verse 23 and verse 24 said. Here's point number two. Y'all still with me? In prayer, remember God's word. Look back at the text with me. There's something interesting that happens here in verse 25. 
Actually, verse 24 says, And when they heard it, they lifted up their voice together, and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, again, he's, they're quoting Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. I love this because the early church not only remembered God's sovereignty, but they remembered God's word during their prayer. And so in, when, in the midst of them praying, they're reaching back into the Old Testament and remembering how faithful God was in Psalm chapter 2. And I love this because in your devotional time, seriously, this week, read Psalm 2. Because in Psalm 2, it's explaining how the nations on the earth literally tried to go into battle against the heavens. Like, you know how silly that is? That, that the nations on the earth thought that they could overtake heaven. And, and they say things, in, in, in which they quoted here in the text, which is, why did the nations rage and the people plot in vain and the kings of the earth set themselves and took uh, rulers uh, took counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, which is Jesus. But what they didn't quote in our passage today, which is why I want you to read Psalm 2, because if, it go, if you read Psalm 2, it goes on to say in verse 4, he who is in the heavens laughs. Can you imagine that? All the nations on the earth plotting against God and trying to overtake God, and he's sitting up in heaven laughing on these fools. They, they think they're going to overtake me. And so what the early church did in Acts chapter 4 is they remembered how God was in control in Psalm chapter 2. They remembered, and what they did was they said, they, let's pray that. When you don't know what to pray, pray the scriptures. This is the deepest thing I have to, to say all sermon. If you're going to pray the scriptures, that actually means you got to read the scriptures. It means you have to actually, can you believe that? You have to actually have to read the word of God, and I would plug it and say you have to read it every day. You know that feeling you have when you leave your phone home? And you're like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm going to do as though the generation before us didn't survive without their phones on them. You know that feeling you have? Like, has anybody ever had that feeling? Like, I have to go, some of us go back home, sit in LA traffic to get back home just to get your phone. Like, what if we had that feeling when it came to reading the word? What if we were like, oh my God, I, I didn't, Lord, I didn't communicate? Because that's what prayer is. You talk to God through prayer. He talks back to you through the word. I mean, unless you're like so spiritually, y'all look spiritual. Unless Jesus just shows up in your living room. I don't think he's going to do that. If you tell me Jesus showed up in your living room and just started talking to you, I'm going to say you're smoking something weird. Uh, or maybe it was a bad taco. I, I don't know that you ate for lunch. But the reality is God typically doesn't speak to us in these mystical ways. He speaks to us through the word. He speaks to us through 66 books that he's given us, written by over 40 different authors, 1,189 chapters, written on three different continents, written in three different languages, all about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Do you realize all of the Old Testament points us to this thing that's coming, this Messiah that's coming? New Testament, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, he steps on the scene, and we marvel at Jesus' work, and we marvel at Jesus' words, and we marvel at his death, and then we marvel at the fact that he rose, and then the rest of the, old, the New Testament points back to the cross. The cross is the central theme of the scriptures, and this is why I trust the word, because I trust Jesus. So you know what Jesus says, things like, you search the scriptures, 
Because in them you think you find life. But these are the very scriptures that bear witness about me. So in your prayers, don't just appeal to a sovereign Lord that made the heavens, but also remember God's word. You don't have anything else. You've ever had those liquid prayers where you don't have any words and you're just crying. You're just, you're just crying. You don't have any words for that situation. You're so hurt. You're so heartbroken. Well, let's get into the word and pray back to the Lord what it is that he already said. I don't know about you, but I trust the word because the word, the, the Bible has transcended ethnicity. It's transcended decades, uh, centuries, socioeconomic makeups. The Bible has stood the test of times. I love the way Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. I trust the word. And so therefore, and if you don't listen, if you're if you are, if you're if somebody brought you here, you don't know Jesus, you're you think this whole thing is weird. I, I get it. I've been there. I understand that. But hear, hear me and hear me well. We trust the word of God because the word of God points us to our sin and our savior at the same time. So that is why we trust in the word of God. Point one, in prayer, recognize God's control. Remember, sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Point two, remember God's word. The Bible said that they quoted Psalm 2. Finally, in prayer, request God's action. I don't know if you've picked this up, but watch verse 29. It says, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant your servant to continue to speak with boldness. Speak your word with boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I don't know if you've picked this up, but in their prayer, they haven't made one petition yet. So far in this prayer, they haven't asked God for anything. They made no requests to God. They started the prayer in verse 24 with saying, Sovereign Lord, but they haven't asked him for anything. Verse 25, they didn't ask him for anything. Verse 26, verse 27, they don't ask him. Verse 28, they don't ask him for anything. Finally, in verse 29, they make a petition. And is this not backwards to how we pray? We typically start with request. Is there anybody honest that would say that? Y'all know we do that. I get in that pinch where, God, I just need you. And so therefore, I don't have a lot of time to talk about you. I just need to ask you for stuff. So we treat God like he's the genie in the bottle. We, we treat God like he is, uh, man, I just felt Christina Aguilera come all over me when I said that. <laughs> I just came out of nowhere. We treat God like he's Santa Claus. We, we, tr- we treat God like, like he's some bellhop boy that's supposed to take our request and be at our command. We treat God like he's serving you, like he's a waiter. But I love the early church because they didn't ask God for anything until verse 29, which means they sat in awe of who God was. They sat in awe. They marveled at the fact that you made the heavens. They marveled at the fact that you made the earth and the sea and everything in them. And so for them, they weren't so excited to ask God about, uh, about doing stuff because they realized there are times that our requests are very fickle. Whenever we start with, with, with just asking requests, Typically, not always, but typically, we're asking for stuff that we really don't need. Most of the time. Has anybody ever done that? Where you, if you look back at your prayer journal, if, you, if you've walked with Jesus for any time, if you look back at a prayer journal, let's be honest, half the stuff on there, we thank God that he never answered. 
Some of y'all prayed for that husband. You looked on Facebook. You like, God, I think you didn't answer. Y'all never did that before? You just keep scrolling. We pray for stuff that we really don't need. And why do we do that? Because we start with a lot of requests. But I love the early church because they teach us something so important. Don't start with requests. Let's just marvel at who he is. Have you ever just said thank you? Have you ever just marveled at the fact that he woke you up? The fact that you took a breath? You realize that Daniel says every breath is held in God's hand. Have we ever just stopped and said, God, thank you for breathing today. Thank, thank you for life today. Thank you for, if you have any amount of health, thank you for what I feel today in my body and what I feel in my health. We don't do that. We typically start with requests, and all of us are guilty of it. All of us have done it on some level. But here's my prayer collective. Collective church, let's reverse that. Let's spend some time seeking the Lord and just asking him, not asking him for stuff, but asking him to give us more of who he is. Learn more about who he is. Our church in a few weeks is doing this thing called an upside-down service, where typically we do it kind of like you do it. We do worship songs, and then we do some announcements the way you guys did it, and then we do uh, the sermon, and then we do another worship song slash communion. We're actually doing it backwards in a few weeks. We're going to do a small sermonette in the beginning, and then we're going to spend the rest of the service worshiping, not asking God for anything, just worshiping who he is, sitting in, in awe of who he is. And that is my hope and my prayer for all of us, that we would sit before asking God for anything, just sit in his presence. But they do finally ask him for something. In verse 29, they say, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. I love this because they're not asking for anything selfish. They're asking for boldness to continue the mission. Can we agree that if they're asking for boldness, that means they were scared? They're asking for boldness. They were afraid. But I'm so amazed that even in their fear, they're not asking God to protect them. That's what I would have prayed. They're not asking God to kill their enemies. That's what I would have prayed. They're not asking God to rescue them. That's what I would have prayed. They're simply asking. They're not asking to be out of opposition. They're asking for strength in the opposition. They're asking for boldness in the opposition in his book, Lecture on Preaching, on preaching, it's Philip Brooks that said this. He says, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your task. What we need, what, what our churches need is more boldness for the gospel. What we need is more boldness for Jesus. What we need to be praying and petitioning the Lord for is more boldness when everyone else around you is compromising. We should be praying for boldness to persevere on that job where everyone else is anti-Christ and you're the only one. You could be salt and light in that moment. Pray for boldness. You know, we, you know how we, in the midst of a moment where we want to tell somebody about Jesus, but we're not sure, we don't want to be that, that dude that, you know, that's weird and, and judgmental. Pray for boldness. I don't know about you, but it's easier for me to preach the gospel in a room full of people than it is with one-on-one. With one-on-one person, it's just so awkward. What I need is pray for boldness. I'm convinced, Lorenzo, I promise you, I think our church has too many strategic meetings. We, We meet too much. What we need to do is pray for boldness. We're trying to strategize our way through the mission 
And really what we need is boldness to persevere, boldness to continue on, boldness to stay the course during opposition, boldness when every door is closing, boldness when we see the church in need of help, but yet we're consumeristic, we just come and sit and sip coffee. Boldness to jump in and say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to be a part and make this thing work. That's what we need. We need boldness. Now, here's the thing. I have no clue how much time I have left. Just keep going. All right, I'll be here for another two hours. Here's the thing about prayer. You do realize that the fact that you're able to communicate with a holy God is proof that the cross works. Let me say that again. The fact that a sinner like you and I, every one of us are sinners. I don't care how spiritual we look or how spiritual we we portray ourselves. Every one of us are sinners. And the fact that a holy God that is perfect, that the Bible says in the Old Testament, dwells in unapproachable lights. There's a point where Moses tried it. Moses said, God, can I see your face? And he's like, can't nobody see me and live? Puts him in a cleft of a rock, and then he lets him see his aftermath. Then there's a point in Isaiah 6 where the angels literally have six wings. Read it. Isaiah 6, they have six wings, and the Bible says with two of them, they hide their face. Why do they hide their face? Because you can't look directly at the perfect holiness of God. With the other two, they hide their feet. Why do they hide their feet? Because feet were considered unclean in ancient times, and nothing unclean could be in the presence of God. And with the other two wings, they just flew around and said, holy holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In other words, God is separate from all of us, but you get access to pray to him. You get access to his throne and you don't have to make an appointment. You don't have to get on his calendar. You don't have to call up his assistant. You can be in the middle of LA traffic and get to the throne of grace. And I love Hebrews because it says, come before him with boldness. It says, come before the Lord with boldness. Do you realize that you have divine access to the Lord and we exercise that access through prayer, but most of us neglect prayer. The path of our prayer closet or our prayer, the bushes, the thickle, the path, the grass is growing on that path for most of us. But you are able to communicate with a holy God and that's only made possible because of the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished for you. What other king do you know that dies for his servants? Name a movie where a king steps off of his throne, dwells amongst his servants, and dies for his servants. One of my favorite movies, I don't know if you guys have seen this movie, but it's called The Last Emperor. It came out in 1987. Last Emperor is about this young, uh, young boy, three years old, rises to the rank of emperor of China. He has these eunuchs and servants, and uh, everyone's worshiping him and serving him. And his brother was amazed at it. And his brother says, well, what happens when you do something wrong? Do you get punished when you do something wrong? And the emperor, the little boy says, no, I don't get punished when I do wrong. When I do wrong, my servants are punished. And he, he wanted to, to, to demonstrate it. So he takes a jar and he smashes it on the ground. And when he smashes it on the ground, his servant is beaten. But in Christ, this is the opposite. This is why I said there is no king that you know that steps off his throne to die for his servants. You always see the servants sipping the cup for the king. We're always the ones that are going to die, not the king, but in Jesus Christ, he's the only one that reverses it. When you do wrong, Jesus was crucified. When you do wrong, Jesus was, bore the, the stripes. 
I love the way Isaiah says it. Isaiah, the Bible says, Isaiah 55, upon him, Jesus was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes, we are healed. You have access to pray to this God because Jesus Christ has made that available to you. He has made that possible to you. And if that is the case, we should all bombard heaven. And he's not in heaven going, oh, my God, I cannot hear. It's too many people praying at once. He's delighted. He misses you. He's delighted to hear from you. So I don't know what it is that you're praying for, what you're asking God for. As a church, I don't know what you're praying for. But I know that we can appeal to a sovereign God. I know that we should remember the scriptures when we are praying. And I know that we should make thoughtful requests to God because he can answer any one of them. Can you do me a favor? Can we just like practice prayer now? Can, we, can you join me as we pray?